It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the, I don't know, are you the fifth or sixth most handsome doctor in North America? This is, it's Derek Miles. I just don't know which number you are. Like, like how far down the pike are we? I'm, I'm pretty sure I am way down the list. All right. Still top 10, though. Uh, we're with Dr. Derek Miles. He's a physical therapist. We're going to be talking about heel pain today. This is episode 181. Not just heel pain, but plantar fasciitis to be specific. But before we get into that, man, we haven't had you on the podcast in a minute. I don't, I don't recall the last time, but you've been, you've been doing some things. You've been all over the United States. You've been all over the internet, more importantly. And, and I just, we need to bring this up. The, your cooking with adhesion segments are incredible. It like, okay, listen, we get a, we get about a hundred thousand downloads on all of our podcasts. So that means that if a hundred thousand people are listening to this and 10% of them take whatever action we, we recommend from these podcasts, which I, I feel like may be generous, but well, let's hope you got to go fo- follow Derek miles for, if not for nothing else, his cooking with adhesions segments. So y- you basically are an incredible chef. At least that's the way it looks like on the internet. And you make a lot of like pain rehab and and other and physical therapy sort of correlations with what you're cooking. Uh, what was the last thing that you put on there? Like that you cooked and then. Uh, I think the last thing I did was a brisket. So uh, there it's, it's easy to make the comparisons to a lot of, especially the manual therapy narratives and thinking you can break down tissue and then trying to do that whenever you're preparing meat. And actually I think the first time you and I ever interacted was uh really related to a clinician claiming that he could break adhesions with very small amounts of force. And through the pandemic, I have uh, kind of taken that to the extreme and <laughs> buying larger and larger pieces of cow and ways of preparing things and uh, seeing how, how much I can learn about cooking, but also the utter futility in thinking you can change tissue structure with your hands. Well, yeah, cause it, it gives you, you can see it, right? So even if you get a big, you know, a whole Packers brisket, you know, 16 pounds, 18 pounds or whatever, and you got all this fascia all over it and a fat pad and this, that, and the other, and you know, you're looking at it and you're like, huh. So if I was palpating this, if I was feeling it right, like underneath the skin, um, of a person, we'll say they had this representative sort of tissue there. Could I distinguish a, an adhesion or a trigger point or some sort of tissue that was quote unquote abnormal? And if so, if so, what could I possibly do about it? So you've done everything. You've done K-tape, which I'm surprised that you even have lying around somewhere. <laughs> you've done, you know, some manual therapy type stuff and you and you show like, hey, this would actually be a silly idea for all these reasons. And then not only that, not like just, hey, look at this and then believe me, but oh, by the way, here's the here are the studies. So it's like you're, you're hitting it on multiple levels visually and then kind of showing your work like it's a math problem and you show your work. And then, oh, by the way, I came with receipts. So check that out. Uh, and you've highlighted all these stuff, the stuff in your story. So just for nothing else, if for nothing else, I think you got to follow Dr. Miles just for the cooking with adhesions. I also think it would be an excellent coffee table book, just like <laughs> or, or or I guess a kitchen, like a kitchen book, you know, cooking with adhesions. People would be like, what is that? And you're like, actually, it's about manual therapy, but um, what is your response? You know, if, I'm sure people slide in your DMS angrily. I mean, just, you know, if you, if you happen to touch their pet sort of therapeutic or therapy or whatever, but I imagine one that's probably most common is, yeah, well, I just do this stuff cause it feels good. You know, what, what's, what's your response to that? Like I, I use a, I don't do this, but let's just say I use a lacrosse ball. I roll around on it or a foam roller. Cause it feels good. Like what's your, what's your response to that? Awesome. If it feels good, <laughs> by all means, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of these things can fall in that feels good camp and it's perfectly okay. It's only when you start trying to attach claims of changing tissue structure or it's something that you need to do. Sure. Yeah. I, I think the boundary is when a clinician turns around and says, this is something you must do in order to keep yourself healthy, which just is completely unsubstantiated. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and the other thing is like humans, we make up reasons for why we do all sorts of things just in general. It'd be very difficult to do some sort of manual therapy like that or like rolling around on a foam roller or a lacrosse ball or, you know, using some sort of blade to like, I don't know, scalp the area. Uh, you, you would, it'd be, un, it'd be difficult to imagine that somebody's doing that without attaching any meaning or rationale to it. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm doing this and it does nothing outside of provide 
me some sensation that feels pleasant, but I don't think it's doing anything in the muscle tissue. It'd be really difficult to imagine somebody would do an activity regularly that they truly in their heart of hearts believed did absolutely nothing. I mean, I, I'm sure it happens, but it seems hard to believe. Yeah. I mean, I, I've certainly had conversations with people who I do think use these modalities just under the premise of it feels good. And yep. if that's the case, cool. Like, it, yep. it, it, but and even beyond that, I think it's not one of those things to where, well, I will say this, it, it is a net negative it has a negative connotation narrative associated with it. But if it, if it gets you to where you feel like you can be more active and there's no harmful back end of it, whatever do you? Yeah. Like it's- yeah. That's, that's the way I generally <clears throat> feel about NSAIDs in resistance training. So people will be like, oh, I've got this pain. I've been taking ibuprofen, you know, before I exercise, is that good, bad? And what do you think? And, you know, some people will say, well, there's studies showing that short-term muscle protein synthesis, you know, right after exercise is blunted. If you take an NSAID and it's like, yeah, but that doesn't matter because the acute changes in muscle protein synthesis, the short-term changes in muscle protein synthesis up or down don't really matter. It truly, which is why like all this post-workout supplementation stuff has been shown not to be that important. We care more about what happens over 24 hours, 48 hours, uh, 168 hours, a whole week. And, you know, when you look further out for the NSA data, it's, you know, basically the same. And the more important thing is if it allows somebody to train or exercise or otherwise be more active, that's a net positive. The problem then becomes though, ah, I, I'm taking the NSAID. It's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. The reason why it works is because it's reducing inflammation. So I was previously inflamed. Now I'm not inflamed. That's why I can be active. I need to work on my inflammation. And if that, you know, begets other behaviors that may be self-limiting or other narratives that become self-limiting, well, then we got a problem. But outside of that, I'm like pro and said, you know, when needed, um, Anyway, we could spend another 50 minutes talking about this, but we're going to talk about heel pain right after a brief discussion. We've been updating templates, the rehab templates. So we did the low back pain that's out and available. We've done the shoulder one. Uh, The knee template is done. I just got to finish the text. People are going to ask like, so are these just like minor updates to the template? And my stock response has been like, no, these are wholesale. Like the whole thing is different. So if you had the one previously, that's fine. Use it. Do your thing. It's just that we, we felt like these things needed to be massively changed um can you speak to that like how how when you saw like what we had before what we have now what do you think like the biggest changes are um for what we've what we've done to them i I think there's a couple of components one being especially in the initial phases how the quote-unquote rehab component of it is structured to emphasize more local work but still allowing an athlete exposure to sbd per Mm -hmm. tolerance and being able to titrate that accordingly, I think it is a little bit um, of a higher slope now as far as the trajectory of how things were dosed in to allow for, if, if an athlete is tolerating it, um, a return to training a little bit quicker. And I think there's been a kind of change in the prioritization where for the initial blocks, it is uh, the emphasis on whatever our rehab component is, and then transitioning into it, those type of things going to the end of the workout to where we're still getting some exposure. It's just not the, uh, it's more the harmony than the, uh, keynote. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. It's, it, they're completely different. Um, so it's not just an update. It's, but if, but that being said, if you have the older one and it worked for you during the time when you needed it, when you had low back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain, you don't need to buy the new one. But if you're listening to this and you're like, you know, I've been having this low back pain or shoulder pain or knee pain, and it's really preventing me from training normally, I'd really like to try to kind of do this on my own, the, te- the templates that it's made for you. On the other hand, I would say if you have tried modifying your exercise, you're very up on all of our material and you really haven't been able to find a way to train productively consistently the template may not be your best choice at that point. It may require, you know, a consultation with our, one of our professionals just to get more specific advice. And and that's kind of how I would structure these things. It's like, all right, you've got this kind of short-term problem that's been preventing you from be- doing the things you want to do. Um, and you're self-motivated, ready to go try a template. 
And if the template doesn't doesn't necessarily work for you, or you have some more questions or need some more guidance, consultation is probably the next step. And that's that's how I how I do that. So uh, as of this recording, I believe the low back pain one is up on the app. It is available on the website. The shoulder one is on the website, but not on the app yet. And the knee pain one uh, isn't on either because it's just not finished. The text component is isn't. But uh, hopefully within the next week, they're they're ready to go. In any case. That's enough for barbell medicine announcements. Let's get into the subject matter. We're talking about your article that was recently published on our website, Barbell Medicine Guide to Heal Pain. Uh, let's start with some definitions. So what is the plantar fascia and what is plantar fasciitis? Because I think most people have heard of plantar fasciitis, but they're like, I don't even know what that is. Well, it, I actually opened up the article discussing this because I do think the terminology gets a little bit problematic. Your plantar fascia or plantar aponeurosis is really a thick ribbon-like tendinous expansion on the bottom of your foot. And it serves to mostly help distribute load. And you'll hear some people talk about the components. Um, what gets talked about a lot if you're talking about gait in running is the spring mechanism to where the tension as a result of weight bearing tends to give you your arch in your mm -hmm. foot. Yeah. So when we were dissecting this, did you guys have a dissection lab as part of your, yeah, I did it in, in PT school and in residency. Yeah. So it's, it's wild. So like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think like how many weeks in before you get to the bottom of the foot, Oh, nearly every anatomy, like at a graduate level, um, and even undergrad level starts on the back, right. You're doing like a superficial mm -hmm. back dissection mainly because there's a lot of structures there that are large. And so when your, your dissection skills aren't really up to snuff, you're like, you can't really mess up the back. You just, you're like, oh, I need to get to the lat, for example. And there's just so much tissue to get through before you get to the lat. Uh, but in, in any case, a few weeks in to your anatomy course, you get down to the lower extremity and then, you know, subsequently the foot. I remember dissecting, you dissect through the heel fat pad first. And you're like, what are all these like yellow globules? And you're like, oh, it's still fat. And then you get to this thick ass, shiny white fascia and you're like bro what and why is this thing so thick even on like a little old lady you're like i don't understand this thing is huge um and yeah so it starts on the calcaneus or as my anatomy professor would say calcaneus which people at nomina anatomica are going to debate that till the end of time uh but yeah it's the, the bone uh the bottom side of your heel and it starts there. And then this thing just expands and it goes out to the base of all the toes. There's a medial component. That's like the plantar aponeurosis or plantar fascia. It's really an aponeurosis, but again, anatomists debate this all the time. And then there's a medial, which is towards the inside of the foot and a lateral component. We're going to be principally talking about the medial component, the plantar aponeurosis. So that's the actual structure. And just, you know, if you, if your eyes glazed over during that whole thing, it's just at the bottom of the foot. It's kind of like a tendon, but thicker and bigger, uh, and helps provide the arch to your foot, some spring energy when you're walking running, jumping, stuff like that. And then also is used heavily when the, uh, calves are contracted and the Achilles tendon kind of yanks on it a little bit. There's like a, they call it a windlass, windlass mechanism. And I looked up a windlass, uh, when I was doing my graduate program in anatomy and I was like, I don't understand how that's a calf and a heel, but I'm just going to go with it. Cause somebody much smarter than me figured this out. Uh, so you got this thick ass tissue on the bottom of the foot. That's a technical term. Wh what happens to make it cause pain uh, and plant and that's plantar fasciitis, you know, as we commonly call it, what, what's like, what's going on there? Well, I think if we had that answer explicitly, we wouldn't be having this conversation. When, <laughs> true, true. And, and you've seen the evolution of what it's been called over the years between plantar fasciitis to plantar fasciopathy. And it is why I think uh, just the vernacular of heel pain is advantageous mm -hmm. here because when it comes right down to it, it is, does it hurt under your heel? And sure. if I poke on it and then it tends to have, individuals tend to experience more pain when they first get moving, like first thing in the morning or if they've been sitting for a while. So, when you look at the causes of it, this was one of those instances where, as I was writing the piece, I had a um, a light bulb moment of some of the demarcation for what we call good and bad. Because if you look at the causative things, you would see something like high arch, low arch, <laughs> right. 
people who work too much, people who don't work enough. And you're like, well, okay, this is great to say because it basically allows us to say everyone has a problem, but there isn't any true, if you do X, it's going to cause Y out of it. Sure. Yeah. There's not a single, not a single particular thing that you're like, boom, that's like inherently risky for this. Um, But there are other conditions that cause heel pain right? Or pain in mm-hmm. that area. For example, Achilles tendinopathy, stress fractures, various neuropathies. Uh, you know, what in your mind, if you see a person like distinguishes plantar fasciitis from one of those, if you're, you know, is it the story that they tell you clinically? Is it the exam? Is it something else? Well, Achilles tendinopathy would also be where symptoms are if I start palpating on the actual Achilles itself, that that pretty much is your rule in. For a stress fracture, if it's an individual who has any type of symptoms or signs of relative energy deficiency syndrome, I'm probably going to have stress fracture on my radar until proven otherwise. But otherwise, if it's someone who has had a recent change in their training or standing at work and has heel pain in the morning, that's plantar fasciopathy or heel pain until proven otherwise. Yeah. So, yeah, I think if someone's not having that localized symptoms to the Achilles, right? Like just, you know, back of the calf, you press on it and you're like, they jump off the table or go, they grimace. You're like, okay, that seems more like Achilles tendinopathy than plantar fasciitis or heel pain in this case. Uh, yeah, I agree with the stress fractures that particularly in someone who doesn't have like an acute injury, right? There's more insidious. Like if somebody jumped off the roof and somehow didn't have, (laughs) you know, bilateral ankle or lower extremity fracture, you know, I'd be looking for a fracture, um, in the, the bones of the foot. Um, it, it, but still there's some crossover here. And I think, you know, if people are going to go look at the literature, you're going to see that plantar fasciitis, there's a peak, for example, in individuals who are 40 to 60 years old, uh, but also in younger runners, and it's not uncommon in runners to also have stress fractures. Um, and so you can, ha- two things can be true at the same time. You can have a stress fracture and plantar fasciitis at the same time. Um, as far as what you do about those things, the management, you know, is going to change slightly, but it would take a very high clinical suspicion, you know, uh, like you said, an individual with reds. And if you don't know what reds is, this is the, the term that's replaced the female triad female athlete triad syndrome, you know, the person who has lost their period is uh, very underweight uh, and, you know, subsequently is at risk for um, stress fractures, uh, among other things. And this happens in men too. Um, so that's why they change it to reds. It is a somewhat controversial diagnosis and there are people arguing about this, but just wanted to cover that. So people weren't like, what is relative energy deficiency syndrome? And why is that important? It's basically like someone's not eating enough and their bones, um, tend to get, tend to get weaker, uh, and you can get a bunch of stress fractures. Um, in any case, yeah, if you've, someone's got kind of this insidious onset of heel pain, worse first thing in the morning, worse when standing, stuff like that. Uh, I'm kind of like, yeah, that's probably plantar fasciitis until proven otherwise. I'm hundred percent, uh, in agreement there, but this is super common worth a million visits to the doctor each year. Uh, and I saw it a lot, even in residency and med school, uh, as a PT, are you, were you getting these referrals? Probably not with the kids, I guess, but maybe more gen pop. Yeah. When I was working more gen pop, we were affiliated with a running clinic actually at Florida and at Stanford. And in both instances, we saw quite a few or a good bit of this diagnosis. And I would put it in one of the very common things. And I, and I think we've seen that even with this article being published, there's been a lot of, Ooh, th- this is information because I've experienced this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You see it quite a bit. So that's why we wrote about it. And that's why we're talking about it. It's super common. Even if you're not a runner, if you're like, listen to this, you're like, I don't run. Like, why do I need to know this? If you are a strength coach, if you are a healthcare provider, or if you are the subject matter expert about strength conditioning within your field, like within your social circle, it is highly likely that somebody you come in contact with is going to have this and having some knowledge here is going to be useful for that discussion point, which earns you social credit amongst your friends. And we love that here at Barbell Medicine. Uh, So as far as risk factors, we've already kind of said running is certainly a risk factor. Why do you think that is before we go into the rest of the list? Why do you think running is like this unique risk, risk factor? Well, I think it it is just the repetitive loading out of it. And it it does come down to once again, like, okay, so what does running mean? If I'm a 
400 meter specialist, do I have the same changes as an ultra marathoner? Mm -hmm. And you tend to see it whenever there is inflections in overall training load. So maybe a 5k runner trying to step up to the 10k distance or 10k up to marathon. So it is, I don't know that I believe it's truly running so much as the programming related to running. Sure. It just the, the volume increase outstripping the sort of adaptive ability of the localized structures. And then, you, yeah. yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's anything? So, I mean, there's a whole section here about biomechanical factors. Do you think there's anything to the running related biomechanical factors? I mean, there's a whole industry based on this, right? There's like, was it roadrunner sports? You can go get fit for certain shoes and insoles and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Well, the easy answer to that is no, I, I do not. I, if you look at just normal human variability, we see a wide range of heel strike four foot strike, you know, all kinds, pick a variable and the standard deviation of normal is very wide. I think the issue that we run into all the time is thinking that if we do this big gate analysis, we can figure out the problem and then go change it. And all of a sudden we're going to have this effect. But if you look at it, even historically, like I, I was in practice when the uh, minimalist shoes first became popular. And everyone was like, this is going to change the game. And all it did was give us a different set of problems because you were taking people that were used to this big cushioned Brooks adrenaline and put them in a Nike free and their foot wasn't used to having to adapt to that. And it's, it's not good nor bad. It's just, it turns out if you're going to make a major change in programming and especially if you're highly trained, you're probably going to see some downstream effects there. Yeah, I wonder. So I, I think it was that guy uh, from, I believe he was, I think he's still at Harvard, uh, Dr. Daniel Lieberman. He actually has written a few books that I'm, I really like. One is called Exercised. It's a great book on like the effect of exercise on the human organism and like how does that square with ev our evolutionary trajectory. He's also got a book I just finished called like uh, The Human Body Through an Evolutionary Scope, which again is like, why, why did we develop all these certain unique adaptations? But basically, he kind of uh, brought to the forefront that the, uh, what, how do you say it, Tarahumara runners, the, these like Native oh, the American. Tarahumara? Yeah. yeah, that they all ran barefoot these long distances. And, you know, they had unique adaptations to their feet. Their feet were a little bit different. And they were able to like run relatively, you know, fast paces for long, long periods of time. And they did it without shoes or with, bare, you know, very minimal footwear. And I think what the public took from that, and that might be a function of mainstream media, uh, is that oof, that's better. We just need these minimally cushioned shoes. We need the, the Vibrams. We need the Nike freeze. We need the whatever. Um, do you think the minimalist shoe movement, do you think that's good or, or bad or, or, you know, more just related to, yeah, people get these shoes, but don't change their training to reflect, yo, you got new footwear, so you should change your training. I think it just is. It, I, <laughs> I, I I don't inherently think one is better than the other. In the whole, you have to have this shoe because your foot is a certain way is a chicken and egg question. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think if we're talking about in the interim, like for heel pain, sometimes we are better off using a little bit more of a rigid shoe in the short term to take some stress off those structures. But yeah. it doesn't mean that we need to put you in a Wolverine boot for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. There's also differences in obviously like what distance you're trying to run in the shoes that people kind of tend to default to. So for example, mm -hmm. a sprint, a track spike for sprinters looks a lot different than someone running the 5k or 10k or cross country. And a lot of that is terrain. Some of it's distance and some of it's just like, yeah, because you're running this quickly, you're putting that much force in the ground. You want this type of soul for energy transfer. Um, but I think, you know, when you get into these sort of recreational distances rec with recreational runners, the idea that there's one type of shoe that sits, that stands above them all. I don't know. That seems unlikely. And I feel the same way in resistance training, right? It's not like everybody needs a three quarter inch effective heel height squat shoe to go squat and deadlift uh, or squat and do the Olympic lifts even effectively. It's just like, we got here by convention, but I, I don't know that that's like what everyone needs. Well, I think sometimes we make the training environment almost too sterile to think sure. that there is just one way that we can do something. Mm -hmm. And the problem when you do that is you put such tight constraints. There was a 
beautiful picture that um, was released after I believe the 2008 Olympics of the 10 K and it was right when the foot strike debate was really coming around and it was the men's 10 K and they showed the foot strike deviations of the top 10 competitors. And it was basically any iteration that you could possibly imagine was represented. Yep. And all over, all like, over the map. Yeah. And well, we all need to heel strike or we all need to midfoot strike. Like, well, that's, that's not what the representation is at the most elite level. And I understand there are flaws in that argument, but I, I think it is a very good case in this instance. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the final common pathway is forward propulsion, right? And you you can get there a bunch of different ways and probably relative to your body, there are more and less efficient ways to do that. Not just your body, but your current fitness adaptations and your current strengths and weaknesses and, and this, that, and the other. It, it's To me, it's very similar to golf. You look at, you know, the top 100 golfers and yes, there are some similarities, but there are also marked differences in how they take the club back, where the club is at the top of the swing. Uh, they all tend to get to about the same place when the club hits the ball. So that's like the final common pathway there, but there are many different ways to get there. And so the, the common parlance, the common kind of response to that is, yeah, swing your swing. And this is kind of like, you know, run your stride, swing your stride, whatever, something like strike that. Strike your strike. Strike your strike. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, obviously there's some running coaches, you know, there's probably a handful of listen to the barbell medicine podcast. They do it out of, they, they just love the torture. They're like, this has nothing to do with running, but I'll listen to this. And they're like, no, 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 there's, you know, all these sort of, uh, uh, you know, metrics and models that we want to like get move, move towards. And, and I'd be on board with that. I'm, I don't certainly consider myself a running coach, particularly from like a running style, uh, uh, type of standpoint. But I think what you said earlier, that the, the variation within movement for humans, even at the elite level, this kind of gives us clues that there's probably not one specific way to run and therefore probably not one particular shoe and strike pattern and, you know, all this other sort of stuff that we need to be moving towards, particularly from like an injury risk reduction standpoint, uh, in this case, plantar fasciitis. Well, I think sometimes we just complicate things for the sake of complicating it. True. There was just that graphic that came out in ACSM talking about like quote unquote good running form and thinking about squeezing your glutes in an upright posture. And like part of the reason people run is to zone out. Like if you're having <laughs> yeah, to do yeah. advanced calculus while they're running, you're probably detracting away from the experience. And no one can think about that much from mm -hmm. hill strike or from strike to strike. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, it's interesting. So, so I think we've effectively covered that running can be a, a risk factor, particularly if there's a ramp up or change in volume or, or total load. So if you keep the volume the same, but you start running much, much faster and you're just not prepared for that. Uh, and then maybe some biomechanical factors contribute, particularly if you're changing them with the shoe and you're not used to that sort of, that sort of particular stress. But the interesting thing with, um, with plantar fasciitis is that also insufficient activity. So people who are, you know, mostly sedentary, uh, or even just have a high volume of like standing or walking can be at risk for this. Do you think that that's a similar mechanism? Like they're just not used to, you know, the people who are insufficiently active, they're not used to like moving around a, bu a bunch. And if they're forced to via occupation or a, a trip, for example, where they walk around a bunch, like it's that sort of thing, or is there something else go you know, going on under the hood? I mean, I would pause at the former. I think it, it is what you're adapted to. And if you look at it, if your daily activity is household ambulation and the furthest you walk is 50 feet, mm -hmm. and then you take a trip to the grocery store where you're going to walk, you know, probably the equivalent of a quarter mile. If you were actually there shopping, you've just exceeded what you're used to by a 10 time multiplier. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what we used to see a lot when I was working in Florida was the people that were community ambulators. And then they would go to Disney and then come back on Monday with heel pain. We're like, well, you average maybe a half a mile a day of walking and just walk six over the course of eight hours. Like it, it just, you didn't do anything necessarily wrong. You just were drastically over what you're accustomed to. Yeah. Yeah. That's a unique stress. And then if that outstrips your adaptive uh, capacity, well, we're kind of, we're kind of up the, up that Creek and not the Creek that you want to be on. Um, 
The other uh, risk factor that comes up over and over again is BMI, so body mass index. And it looks like if the BMI is greater than 27, that seems to be a unique risk factor. Um, I'm wondering, you know, there's there's some obvious mechanical thing going on there, uh, potentially, because the, the people with BMI of 27 tend to weigh more than the individuals with the lower BMI. But we see this sort of same thing in um, osteoarthritis, where, like, for example, the most common uh, joint or set of joints that has pain tend to be in the non-weight-bearing joints of the hands. And we think this is due to some sort of hormonal-related uh, aberration. So for example, the fat tissue is not just this inert substance that we draw energy from throughout life, but rather it's constantly secreting hormones and doing stuff. And so the hormones released by the fat tissue are called adipokines. Adipose tissue produces these hormones called adipokines. Those things kind of go around to all the tissues of the body and do stuff. Uh, in the liver, for example, they help make more LDL and not, not so great. And at the, in the musculoskeletal system, they may in fact induce some inflammatory type, uh, responses. So we think that's one of the sort of metabolic, uh, sequelae of increased fat mass causing increased incidence of osteoarthritis in individuals who carry extra body fat with respect to plantar fasciitis. Do we think that the, the, the mechanical forces from carrying extra body mass are more at play here? Or do we think that there's some metabolic stuff or we think it's a, like a 50, 50. I would say we don't know. If, <laughs> if, you, yeah, if you look at a lot of the data on this, like there was some studies that were talking about a thickening of the plantar fascia or plantar fascia on ultrasound being a predictive factor, but then you get into a like wider population and that falls flat. And, you know, if you think about it, with any type of reflection, I highly doubt me at six to 245 pounds has the same thickness or should have nearly the same thickness as an individual who may be five, eight, 155. Mm-hmm. And sure. so our normative values are, would, or the values would probably have to be normalized before we could say anything predictive out of this. I would pause it and fully concede my slant is that most individuals aren't meeting physical activity guidelines and Mm -hmm. odds are if you are a higher BMI and not meeting physical activity guidelines, it's probably not either or it's probably both a a structural thing and a hormonal thing that's contributing to this. Yeah. Yeah. The probably, yeah, I think, I think the co-occurrence is, is, you know, there's, there's likely a, the confounding factor, uh, with the BMI and then not meeting physical activity guidelines. The other sort of confounding factor that immediately comes to mind is most people who's got, who have a BMI greater than 25. Um, so they're in that overweight or uh, an individual with obesity sort of category. If their BMI is greater than 30, uh, close to 86% of them at some point in a year will undertake an exercise program, um, from previously being insufficiently active. And so you think about the person who's maybe not really well adapted to exercise and then they start this exercise plan. Um, if it's not dosed appropriately, that seems like a recipe for increasing risk of plantar fasciitis. And then you layer on the risk factor of having this hormonal milieu, you know, that may be increasing risk plus the mechanical load. It seems like a, a recipe for, for, for disaster, so to, so to speak, you know, with respect to risk of plantar fasciitis and, and maybe osteoarthritis. Uh, and so what we'd want to do is obviously get these people meeting the guidelines, but also do it in a gradual way and in a way that is accessible to them and, and maybe intelligently programmed. Maybe a bike is a better way, you know, rather than just, ah, just walk, just walk 10,000 steps a day, go from zero to 10,000 real quick. Uh, maybe the bike has a, plays a role there, um, or other sort of, um, activities that, uh, maybe a little bit less, um, you know, weight bearing. Just to kind of balance it out and get somebody ready for that sort of activity. So in the adolescent population, this is where Helen Collins' work comes in to where children or adolescents with a higher BMI, they've got them on resistance training programs to start them out yeah. and have very good outcomes. Because for one, if you are deconditioned and I tell you to go run for 10 minutes, I've probably drastically exceeded what you're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. But if I tell you we're going to deadlift, you get you know 20 seconds of work and then you can stand around for a little while and recover. So yeah. it, it is a little bit more metabolically aligned with the capabilities of a novice individual. 
Yeah, you can dose that a lot easier too, though, right? It's like yeah. we want to get this amount of work done, provide this amount of stimulus, and where it's it's infinitely scalable in a way. Um, you know, that brings up a good point though, because some people are going to ask, or at least maybe think, like, all right, you guys are talking about the plantar aponeurosis, this arch. You said it contributed to the arch. You know, if I'm lifting some challenging weights, squats or deadlifts, doesn't that wouldn't that flatten the arch? Wouldn't that put a bunch of quote unquote stress? on that on that uh, tissue like is that a risk factor nope <laughs> and, but I, I think what you said there the, the thing i would key key in on is stress and it seems like whenever we use the word stress we automatically apply that negative connotation mm-hmm. but we need stress in order to adapt and mm-hmm. odds are if you're putting stress through that joint it's going to adapt and likely help you i would posit maintain the arch that you have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're going to have, again, people with all sorts of different foot anatomy and, and sort of baseline characteristics. And then if the dose of exercise, which should include resistance training and conditioning, if the dose is appropriately meted out or, do, you know, uh, given to them, then you're providing enough stimulus to drive fitness adaptations without overwhelming the individual. And so the, the arch and the, all the structures that contribute to the arch and all the muscles around the arch and everything else should adapt, you know, uh, uh, in response. And I, you see that over and over and over again. And even in cases where there's some hint of pathology, I think you brought, you brought to my attention, uh, youth weightlifters and the changes in their, the, the bones of their spine, the vertebral bodies, uh, the, the vertebra themselves, actually, that it looks like they have all these changes in the facet joints and you know at the, the medial end plate of the vertebra and it's like on x-ray it kind of looks crappy <laughs> to say the least but really these are just stress reactions to the actual sport that they're doing and you see the same thing in their knees you see their cruciate ligaments for example get thicker in their knees and it's like is this good bad or just adaptive to what they're doing um i don't know i think if you were a radiologist and just looking at it you're like huh I've never seen this before, so it must be abnormal. So I kind of empathize with them on that. Well, it's it's like the uh, morphological changes in the acetabulum that we'll sometimes talk about with FAI. And then you look at hockey players, and I think the most recent meta-analysis said 87% of hockey players had some type of morphological change. Yeah. So at that point, you're like, well, maybe if you don't have a change, you're not going to be a good hockey player. Yeah, you're it's funny because capacity. Yeah. Well, when we look at the shoulder, you have humeral head retroversion seen as this like great thing to happen if you're an overhead athlete. And then we talk about these morphological changes in the acetabulum, we assign them a negative, but it's the exact same stress that's going to cause those changes in both instances. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So just, just because there's a change doesn't automatically mean it's bad. I think, I don't know, well, like you said, the normative, the normal sort of, in this case, thickness of the plantar aponeurosis. What does that mean? Like what's normal, you know, like who, who's the normal subject is a 70 kilo male who's otherwise untrained, you know, and has no apparent disease. If so, that's fine. But like, I would expect, for example, your plantar aponeurosis to be thicker and more robust and have unique adaptations relative to what you've done your whole life. Uh, and same thing as mine. I, and so how do you, how do you kind of go from there? But, but I think, you know, for people listening to this, I'm not worried about what happens to your arch while you're squatting or deadlifting. I don't want you to like adopt a particular foot position or even footwear, uh, to get a particular arch change or like arch, uh, 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 position. I think rather the, you're going to know whether the dose and type of training is appropriate based on other like more global features. Mean, meaning that if you're constantly sore, constantly tired, you don't, you know, whatever that tells me the dose is probably a little too high for what you can currently deal with. Not like, did your arch happen to deviate two millimeters during the fifth rep of a set? Like, I, I don't know what that means. And further, I don't know if it doesn't deviate if you're any better. I think it just one of those artifacts of movement. Um, so people, you know, will say, well, what about the tripod foot? I'm like, what the, what about it? I think that's just, I think the foot for me, from a coaching perspective, I look at it more as an artifact of what else is going on. Right. 
So, so if the, if the heels are coming up, for example, I know somebody's forward of their center of mass and center of balance. And I think that can happen for a number of reasons, not having much or if anything to do with the foot itself, same thing. If the toes are coming up, right. They're like their hips and knees are too far back on their descent. And so again, just because what you see something happen in the foot doesn't mean that correcting it starts in the foot. Um, so I think a lot of this foot stuff on OnlyFans, on Instagram, or whatever, I just to me it makes it makes my eyes roll back in the back of my head, and uh, I think that people are kind of missing the forest for the trees. I would just kind of ignore it. Well, I think we're really good at tending to gravitate towards complicated things, and when you look at just the number of bones and muscles in your foot, or you know the other one, I think we see it in a lot of the shoulder to where it's like, well, we have all these moving parts, so this has to be the causative factor instead of scaling out and saying, well, how much does this really matter? And the one that I found the funniest when researching this is you see a predictive factor being limited dorsiflexion. So if, if I looked at you and said, what is limited dorsiflexion? I highly doubt you would come back and say to me, the studies they published showed zero degrees. Right. Like, yeah. That's, that's not limited dorsiflexion. That is like restricted, obvious things. Like the difference between 15 degrees and 10 degrees likely doesn't matter that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you have no dorsiflexion, which is evident based on, you'd see that on gate, you'd see that, <laughs> you know, any sort yeah. of movement. Um, yeah. You go from zero to somebody having, you know, a hundred and whatever, 10. Yeah. Big difference there, but the difference between a hundred and 110. Yeah. Probably yeah. doesn't really matter. Um, you ever test anybody's foot strength? Is that something you nope. guys ever do in the clinic? No? Because nope. there's a big thing about foot strength. Like, oh, your feet have to be strong. And because, you know, the the cushioning and all the other things within a shoe, like, make up for foot strength, you should train barefoot. What do you, what do you like, lift weights barefoot? What do you think about that? Do you? Uh, I, I, <laughs> I think if, in the grand scheme of things, I I would say there is some utility in using different footwear and maybe doing some things barefoot just for the exposure out of it. Do I think it is this panacea that's going to fix all of humanity's problems? No, mm-hmm. but you know, if I had the choice between taking an athlete who is an SBD specialist and saying, well, I can change up your shoes or you can stay in the same shoes and I could possibly program in some power stuff, whether it be like jumping or whatever. I would probably say there's more utility in the latter than the former. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think people just take the idea of having some variation to, to an extreme, uh, here. So, I mean, there's people that chain at my gym barefoot, like no socks, no nothing. And I'm like, Hey man, this is a public gym. Get your, get your onychomycosis out of here. Get your, nasty feet off this gym floor because you're not going to follow yourself around with a mop or like you know sanitizer so that's that's kind of weird um i i think if somebody was getting ready for a meet or otherwise really invested in squat bench deadlift like look there's clearly advantageous footwear to wear for those activities not everybody's going to squat in heeled shoes some people prefer flat shoes uh bench same sort of thing some people can get a better arch and a better stable position to bench press from with a heeled shoe. Some people flat shoe, others a minimalist shoe. Same thing on deadlifts. Like you see this whole thing. Um, it, and so, yeah, artificially like limiting the load and limiting your performance with footwear. If you are a power lifter and that's the most important thing to you, that seems dumb to me. But if you are not a power lifter and you're doing general strength conditioning, I think, you know, having maybe some of your variants done in just trainers, and some of the stuff done in lifting shoes and maybe some of the stuff done in minimalist shoes, if you have access, all of that could be useful in just kind of increasing your exposure to different things. The, the inflection point here where things start going crazy is when you're changing this, what you're doing so frequently that you've spread yourself too thin to actually make progress. And so I kind of default to this, you got 
two or three maybe pairs of shoes that you wear. One is for squats and you, you, you use those most of the time, but not all the time. One is for like general athletic stuff. If it has to do with jumping or single leg work or whatever, use it for that. And the other, maybe your deadlift shoes, if you have a specific pair of shoes, but you know, if you're doing RDLs and you have your lifters on like, okay, that's fine too. It's just changing things up so frequently. You got 15 pairs of shoes, each with different sort of things. I don't know that you need to do that. And I also don't know that you need to think this much about your damn footwear. Well, <laughs> just, yeah. Period. I, I'm sure you're like me. Uh, most of the time, like what shoes you wear just depends on it, after I finish squatting, do I feel like taking my shoes off? Yeah. Like it, yep. it's, do I want to take the time to go change out of that? Or can I just go knock out whatever's next to my program? Yeah. Well, like, so Austin, we were just in uh, Reno. I picked him up from Reno. We went to Tahoe and uh, we got a workout in beforehand. Um, I didn't bring any lifting, like any shoes with me for lifting, except for my, was in my gym bag. So I had my squat shoot, my, my trainers, uh, which are Reebok legacy lifter twos. And then I have my deadlift shoes, which are these indoor soccer shoes that they don't make anymore, but everybody still asks us about them on Instagram. Cause they're like, Oh, you guys deadlift a lot. It must be the shoes. I'm like, it's not the shoes. And Austin on the other hand, yeah, right. He brought, um, just his one pair of like tennis shoes that he, he wears which were Nike or sorry, Adidas NMDs, just like a normal trainer, not flat, not minimalist, nothing. And he pulled 694, you know, easy. And he didn't have to like adjust anything or whatever. He just, his shoes just didn't matter. And so I think for most people listening to this, they're like, all right, so should I change my shoes? Or like, what's the deal? I'm like, if you have plantar fasciitis or something you're dealing with, then maybe we could make a case for being more specific with our footwear and varying them periodically to increase your exposure. But if you don't have this, Eh, I think the best you can do is, you know, wear the shoes that maximize your performance most of the time. Uh, don't get too crazy and micromanage this stuff. And then, uh, you know, just don't think about it that much. Cause I just don't think it's that contribute. That's that contributory. And for the love of God, keep your damn socks on. Like, just, I don't want to see your toes. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and as far as foot strength, just, I feel like your foot, like every other structure in your body is going to adapt to what you do. So I don't know that I go down this rabbit hole of increasing foot strength or increasing specific types of adaptations in your feet, unless you need them for your activity. If I was going to take up like cross country or trail running or whatever, my preparatory process would involve obviously some running on concrete, just cause that's easily accessible, but also probably some beach running or running in the woods on softer surfaces. And you know, I would probably specifically program that because I need to develop all of those adaptations. Uh, but if it's not, I mean, I don't know that I, you really need to think about that that much. The the evidence certainly wouldn't support that you do. Yeah, there you go, guys. Don't need to worry about it. But if you do have plantar fasciitis, you do have this pain that's worse upon waking first thing in the morning, taking your first few steps. It hurts when you're standing there and you don't have any of the other things that we kind of previously discussed, like Achilles tendinopathy that happens to be referred to your ankle stress fracture, uh, stuff like that. What, what should people do? And I think we can break this into two different categories. We can start with like the trained individual, the person who's actively like meeting physical activity guidelines. So that'd be a rarity in general, but, uh, for somebody who's actively training and they get this pain, what, what would you have them do? Uh, I'll be the first one to commit here, say on the Barbo Medicine podcast. All right, um, they should they should stretch. Wait, wait, wait. What? <laughs> Hold uh, on. What? Yeah. So, according to the evidence, the one thing that has been shown to help with symptom management. I want to be clear here: symptom management, not changing your plantar <clears throat> fascia, is working on stretching the bottom of your foot. And the way they typically teach it is sitting and pulling up on your big toe and pulling yourself into some dorsiflexion to get that stretch sensation. And once again, for symptom relief, then the other component is doing some foot strengthening. The way they dose that in the literature is basically a modified calf raise where you're doing it either barefoot or in your socks but you roll up something, put it under your toes to place them into some extension and get a little bit more bias down into the base of your foot. So is the, the stretching, do we think it's like changing the tissue? It's making it longer. Uh, it's anything no. like that. No, so just, just hard. No. Yeah. 
So do Correct. we think this is maybe more like a desensitization thing? Like you're you're basically you're ranging the tissue, right? You're kind of elongating it and shortening it, and you're kind of reducing the sensitivity that people have during normal gait, walking, and other sort of activities. Is that maybe the thought, the mechanism? Yes. Yeah, and um, and it does get into some of that whenever we have symptoms like this is trying to expose in different dosages to get things to calm down and you're not going to change the tissue structure of the base of your foot with a stretch it's just way too thick even for the things that we typically talk about um it, very durable stuff and you're not going to quote unquote stretch it into deformed tissue yeah yeah, that make that makes sense to me, and, and it's an easily sort of graded exposure. I think with your hand, you know, because mm-hmm. you're gonna be like, oh, too much, ooh, not enough, ooh, too much, ooh, not enough, and so you get somebody who's like just able to to kind of do it uh, at home, and and you know, you don't need any specialized equipment or tools or instruments or anything like that. So, all right. So they're going to do some stretching maybe initially just to kind of desensitize. Are you pairing that with any specific exercises or like? What's going on? Uh, I do tend to give calf raises, like I said, with the uh, towel rolled up under someone's foot. And and if you go to the article, we have pictures of this stuff all listed on there. That way you can get an idea. But I I don't think there is a gold standard here. You could also do seated calf raises, donkey calf raises. Like, you know, you you can bubba gump your calf work, as it were. Wait, is this a southern? Is that southern thing? Bubba gump? what, What does that mean? Dude, you you don't know Bubba Gump? I, the, I like, do. I yeah, but I don't know like how that relates to training. Well, it's like you know you got shrimp etouffee, shrimp po' boy, <laughs> shrimp pasta. Like we have donkey calf raises, seated oh, calf see, raises, single leg calf raises. Well, you know, with a lot of the injury stuff, uh, we've talked about this, like particularly during the acute or initial onset, that you're having people start their workouts with like, you know, some sort of uh, quote unquote rehab work or desensitization work. You think people, if they're having this, should start their session with calf raises and then move to squats, for example, afterwards, if they can tolerate that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I think it, it, especially in the more acute phase out of it, um, I think putting these type of exercises in the one and two slots tend to be helpful to not only get a warm up, but it also can help you get a little bit of a mental titration on where things are going to be for the workout that day. Yeah. And I'd like to bring something up here too. I think, you know, the rehab exercises, we typically start programming them at like sets of 15 for RP seven or eight. And, you know, when people see that RP seven, they're like, oh, it's going to be easy. And I'm like, well, these are mostly isolation movements, you know, local movements. And that's, that's a, you know, three reps shy of failure, which is pretty, pretty close to failure. It should be hard and it should be hard work. Um, particularly again, for movements that you do not have like a bunch of extra muscles contributing to. So like a set, a set of five at seven on the deadlift, for example, for me, it's hard, but not as hard, at least the way I experience it, um, as a set of 15 at seven on like a, you know, YTI or, you know, a wire mm-hmm. T exercise for my shoulders, mainly because I don't have extra stuff that I can access to do the rep. It's just my shoulders either like almost burnt out or not. And so going to that RP seven feels different, uh, on a deadlift at seven, I'm like, oh, well my back's a little, you know, fatigued, but I can just use more legs on this one. You know, not that I'm consciously thinking about that. I just have more stuff available to get the, the load to move. So I, th- I think when people are saying, all right, so I'm doing sets of 15 at seven, it's just easy mailing it in. I'm like, I don't know, man, that should be hard work. Same thing on the, on the calf stuff. I think if you're taking this stuff near failure, you're, you should be near freaking failure and that's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to feel more uncomfortable than you think it should be. Yeah, I I agree with that entirely. And I think sometimes there's a tendency to just kind of go through the motions with the quote unquote rehab exercises. Whereas, you know, if, if it is more in that like bodybuilding single joint and an at seven should give you a pretty decent pump. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Um, so previously what in my programming, um, like I don't do calf raises or calf work and no one's under the delusion that I train my calves a lot just due to their morphology. But if I have a client that's a runner or does any sort of endurance sport, like locomotive endurance sport like that, or is involved in a sport with running, jumping, stuff like that, I program a 
or as a body, you know, bodybuilder, I program calf work, um, mainly because one, I don't want to leave that area of the body untrained. And then two, I, I think particularly for sports that have this single leg phase where you're producing a high amount of force that just provides extra reinforcement when you need to, uh, need to send it. Do you think non power lifters or maybe even power lifters, I don't know. You can weigh in on that too. Uh, should be doing calf work. Yes. Um, I think <laughs> just full. Yes. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and here's how I'll justify this. I, I would venture a guess and, and that actually I would be comfortable just flat out saying this. Most athletes who consider themselves power lifters have forgot to be an athlete. Mm. And w- what has happened is you have, um, an unathletic mediocre power lifter that would probably be a much better power lifter and much better athlete if they spent even a little bit of time working on just some fundamental athletic principles. Yeah. And, high velocity force production, single leg work, calf stuff. Well, you, you know, it's everyone benched four Oh five in high school, but everyone also had a 24 inch vertical. And then they like, one of my favorite questions these days is asking someone in their thirties and forties, like when's the last time both your feet left the ground at the same time? <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, it's interesting. I had this, po- uh, I did a podcast with Mike Tuscher, uh on his channel. We were talking about sort of long-term training strategies and how that evolves over time. And uh, I, I use this uh, sort of analogy that your training should look like um, an hourglass tipped on its side. So meaning that at the start of your career, you have a wide range of things that you're trying to develop. You're trying to develop low velocity strength, high velocity strength, strength, stamina, cardiorespiratory endurance, agility, all these sort of things. Right. And then as you specialize in a sport that tapers down to the stem or the neck of the, uh, hourglass and you're just, you're, you know, if you're a powerlifter, it's probably SBD most of your training. And you see the payoff there too, because you get way better at the SPD as you specialize. But at some point, you know, a few years into training, four years, five years in, you stop seeing that same sort of return on investment. The problem there is in your brain, when you started specializing in SPD, you saw these market gains, right? So you're like, if I could just go back and recapture lightning, you know, and I'm I'm gonna be on the world stage. But in fact, you need to kind of re-expand, rewiden your, you know, what you're trying to develop because you're getting less and less and less out of just SBD and you've let a bunch of other adaptations decay that through unexplained mechanisms contribute to your SBD performance. So a little bit of high velocity work, a little bit of unilateral work, a little bit of isolation sort of work, you know, in this case, uh, some cardiorespiratory fitness training, all of that stuff can improve this big base that you've built that you can now apply specifically as a, an athlete, uh, who's been doing this for a while. And so I, I think, you know, calf raises, I don't think have a big cost for recovery. Um, and, and similarly, I think doing cardiovascular fitness training can have a relatively low cost, but, you know, trying to get people who are really on the precipice of being like a, national and international level lifter, trying to get them to move away from only SBD all the time to, to rewiden, uh, to more diverse sort of fitness goals. I think that's tough. I mean, people are like, well, what is this going to do to my squat? I'm like, well, fuck, I don't know immediately, but I think it's well, better. One, I, I think that's a beautiful analogy and I'm definitely going to steal it. So and there's no way I'm giving you credit. So just be aware. That's fine. Um, but I, I do think you hit on something there that like no athlete can deadlift max effort six days a week. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure there are some drugs and stimulants you could run. that could let you tolerate that for a little while, but like you, you have to get some of that supplemental volume somewhere else. And I think we don't appreciate how well just doing other things ends up contributing. And, and it's funny cause we can tie it back to the beginning. Like, me breaking down a, a brisket doesn't make me a better physical therapist, mm-hmm. but it's made me a better physical therapist because I can see the analogies of what I'm doing there and how it relates to communication. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, 
just in general, people will hyper-focus on and perseverate on one particular thing. And we just need to look bigger picture. And, and I think the way that ties into the heel pain thing is if you have heel pain, you're thinking, all right, what is the, what caused this? And I wouldn't perseverate over one particular thing. I would look at your training load. I would look at your previous exposure to sort of bounding, running, jumping activities and what you're doing now. I would look at your previous preparation. Like, are you doing calf raises? What's your single leg work look like? Um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, after, after that, you're, you're going to modify appropriately, do some of these, uh, exercises you may not have been doing before, adjust your training load and, 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 and go from there. Um, the last question I'll have for you, when should someone go see a doctor for this stuff? So there's actually a great uh, paper from last year that kind of explored this topic. If you look at the natural history of heel pain, it tends to resolve in about a year and that's awesome because it resolves, but most people don't really want to wait a year anyway. Mm -hmm. Most of the recommendations you'll see would say if you're trying these conservative measures and it's not resolving in two to three months, you should seek additional care. Yeah. I feel like that's pretty, pretty good too for like, for most of the low back incidences as well. And, uh, you know, knee pain, shoulder pain, all that sort of stuff. I feel like if you've had this persistent pain, you haven't, you've been trying different stuff to try to get it to feel better and re and access, uh, you know, um, different movements and loading strategies to meet the physical activity guidelines. You can't do it. Yeah. Probably need some professional guidance there. And just to make sure we're not missing anything else that may be contributory, but yeah, I think that's, that's reasonable. We'll link that. I'll link that and the link to your article in the description below. Uh, Derek Miles, thank you for joining us on the Barbell Medicine yeah, Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yep, this has been episode 181, Heel Pain, Plantar Fasciitis. Link to everything we discussed in this podcast in the description below. And also don't uh, don't forget to follow Dr. Derek Miles for his cooking with adhesions piece. It is excellent. Maybe the best thing in the Barbell Medicine metaverse, uh, <laughs> if I can use that term. Um, in any case, before you go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance of health and fitness. Again, this is the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Uh, we'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.